the History Channel original podcast. Sports history this week. July 4th, 1939. I'm Kalen Jones. It's a muggy afternoon at Yankee Stadium. More than 60,000 people squeeze into the stands. Everyone's here to celebrate the career of the best first baseman to ever play the game, Lou Gehrig. As always, he doesn't want the attention. The crowd hushes as the legend walks to home plate. Wearing an oversized pinstripe uniform, With an interlocking NY on his chest and the number four on his back, he avoids eye contact with all 60,000 people. The ceremony begins as Gehrig listens to the mayor of New York give a short speech. Next comes the presentation of gifts. His teammates commissioned a trophy for Gehrig, with a poem engraved on the base and an eagle perched on top of a baseball. When Gehrig is handed the trophy, He's too weak to hold it, forced to bend over and set it in the grass. After all, Gehrig's muscles are wasting away. At just 36 years old, he's become the most high-profile victim of ALS, a neurodegenerative disease barely known in the 1930s, an affliction that terrorizes your muscles and melts them away. It's a cruel irony. Gehrig is known as the most resilient player in the game. Again and again, he broke records for playing in consecutive games. A thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand, eventually two thousand one hundred and thirty games in a row. But in his 14th season, Gehrig has to finally accept that his time has come. That's why the Yankees are honoring him today on what they're calling Lou Gehrig Appreciation Day. The MC asks Gehrig if he wants to say anything to the crowd. He shakes his head no. Jonathan Eig, who wrote a book about the ballplayer's life, explains. And the crowd starts chanting, we want Lou, we want Lou. And finally, like he twists his hat in his hand and he slowly steps up to the microphone and... Um, seems to give the speech off the top of his head. past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Off the cuff, he gives arguably the greatest speech in American sports history. And that's the moment when people discover the real Lou Gehrig. Today, baseball's iron horse delivers one of the most memorable speeches in American history while confronting his inevitable fate. What did Lou Gehrig mean to baseball? And why is his story of endurance and resilience still important today? It's just an incredibly tragic story.
Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. On June 19, 1903, Henry Louis Gehrig is born to a family of German immigrants, his mother a housekeeper and his father a metalworker. They live a few blocks south of Harlem in New York City. Gehrig is a restless kid. He plays marbles, gets into snowball fights, and of course, plays baseball. He would play early in the morning before heading up the 181st Street to swim. Gary gets picked on a lot. Sometimes for being shy, other times for being German, and also for being a little heavy. His first nickname was Fat. A very simple nickname because he was pretty chunky. Baseball is an escape for Gehrig. He collects baseball cards from his dad's cigarette packs and dreams of going pro. As a child of immigrants, baseball is also a way to fit in with the other kids. At some point, Gehrig's dad starts taking his son to German health clubs, and Lou falls in love with fitness. His dad teaches him that he can gain confidence from exercising. So Lou does. He bulks up and views physical strength as a guiding force. It's important to note that Heinrich and Christina Gehrig had three children, but Lou was the only one to survive beyond early childhood. So Gehrig was the only one to survive, and I think that's a huge factor in shaping his personality. He feels like he has to be so strong to make sure that his parents' only surviving child can live and can help take care of his family. I think that's a big part of why he eats and he exercises and he grows into this really powerful young man because he feels determined not to let his parents down, that he has to be big and strong and healthy. It also makes him kind of a mama's boy. <laughs> I think a big part of the reason that he's so shy and so insecure is that he, he feels this incredible connection and loyalty to his mother, and he never outgrows it. In the era around the start of World War I, young people didn't always go to high school. They would begin working full-time right away, at the family store, at home, or at service jobs. But Gehrig's mom insisted she wanted her son to be something more, and by his junior year at Commerce High School, he's playing sports nonstop. At first, baseball is his weakest game. He was a clumsy fielder. Gehrig plays running back in football. But in baseball, he starts to realize he can hit the ball hard. By his senior year, strangers were already offering him money to play on semi-pro baseball teams. At 17, Gehrig's high school team is the best in New York City. And an opportunity arises, a chance to play in a real Major League Baseball stadium against the best high school team in Chicago. His mother didn't want him to go. She had never let him out of the city before. He had never been outside of New York. The idea of Gehrig going all the way to Chicago is unimaginable to his mom. His parents were not happy about him playing baseball. Once he said that um, he wanted to play in college, once he said that he wanted to try to play professionally, his parents were against it because they thought it was, uh, it was silly. It was a boy's game and that nothing would come of it. 
Like many immigrant families, Garrick's parents want him to get a college degree, maybe become an engineer. Baseball is just something to be played in the streets. No, Lou is not going to Chicago. Why would he? Lou enlists his coach to convince his mother. He's got to go to Chicago. The kid is good. His travel was paid for. It's a chance to play in a big league park. The visit serves as a turning point in how his parents view baseball. They don't realize how important baseball is in American society. The parents are learning as they go along. And to get a visit from the coach saying, we need your son to go to New York. This is, a, this is not just a game anymore. This matters. In Chicago, the stands are packed. For most of these kids, it's the biggest game they'll ever play in. Gehrig has more eyes on him than ever before, and he makes it count. Gehrig comes up to bat with the bases loaded, and he hits the ball, not just over the fence, but out of the ballpark. It lands on Waveland Avenue in Chicago, out on one of the stoops across the street. So a mammoth home run, a, you know, a very adult Babe Ruthian home run. So this is clearly a, you know, a coming-of-age moment. Gehrig's name is highlighted in the newspapers. He's being called Babe Gehrig, the Babe Ruth of high schools. It's not the last time he'll be compared to the Babe. After high school, Gehrig has the chance to leave New York. But this mama's boy is not about to leave his family behind. So he goes to Columbia University, just three miles from his childhood home, where his mom works. The New York Times has started calling him Babe Ruth, too, this time of the Eastern College Circuit. He's a star, and yet he still prefers spending time with his mother rather than socializing with his classmates. But on the field, Gehrig is playing like a powerhouse. He's throwing the ball hard and hitting it even harder. It's not long before he gets the attention of major league scouts. The New York Giants want Garrick to quit school and join the team at first. That didn't take. But they said, at least come to a tryout. Garrick arrives at the Giants Stadium, the Polo Grounds. The unique Riverside Stadium in northern Manhattan is empty. The manager of the team, John McGraw, sits on the dugout step. The black-haired, dark-eyed skipper looks out from under his cap. He's considered one of the greatest baseball minds alive. Gehrig stands at home plate. The tryout begins well. He starts whacking balls far into the right field stands. A fielding test is next, but a ground ball skids past Gehrig's legs. McGraw has seen enough. This manager's baseball philosophy leans more on agility, bunting, and base stealing. Not big hitters who can't field a ball. One of John McGraw's biggest mistakes is that Garrick boots a grounder during his tryout for the Giants, and, and McGraw says, nah, this kid's clumsy, sends him away. The Yankees are not about to make the same mistake. Their scout appreciates Garrick's expertise, hitting the ball and hitting it hard. There are very few guys hitting the ball deep into the seats the way Babe Ruth did. And here's a kid who comes up there and you can hear just from the crack of the bat that he's strong, that he's, you know, hitting the ball harder than just about anybody else. There's no question that the Yankees were ahead of the curve in appreciating that the game was changing to a power game, that fans loved watching home runs. 
The first time a Yankee scout sees Garrick play, he hits two homers in three at-bats. The scout, Paul Critchell, tells the Yanks manager he had found the next Babe Ruth. He tracks Garrick down after a Columbia game, and Critchell asks the shy German-American to show up at Yankee Stadium the next morning. A college sophomore now, Garrick is ready to play ball full-time, even if it means not graduating. The team offers him a contract, and Garrick accepts. And it comes at a good time. His mom and dad are financially strapped. After nearly a full season in the minors, Garrick finally gets the call. The Yanks invite him to finish up the year in the big leagues. It's late September. The Yankees are playing Detroit and have fallen behind in the eighth inning. Their manager, Miller Huggins, decides to give first baseman Wally Pip a rest. And why not put Gehrig in the lineup as his replacement? The Yankees were slumping, and Miller Huggins was looking to shake up the lineup. It's just that the team needed a needed something to, uh, you know, a shot of energy. Gehrig heads up to the plate against Detroit with two outs and the bases loaded. He nails a line drive over first base and brings a pair of teammates home to tie the game. Wally Pip never plays for the Yankees again. And Gehrig doesn't miss a game for the next 14 years. It's opening day at Yankee Stadium in 1927. The stands are packed. More people are here than for the 1926 World Series. The peanuts and hot dogs are unusually tasty and the weather is perfect. Gehrig had a strong season the year before, but his eyes are now set on bigger things. He's bulked up, reaching 210 pounds. During spring training, he worked hard to reduce his mental mistakes, to run the bases more carefully, and to improve his fielding. For the past few years, the Yankees have been the Babe Ruth show. The larger-than-life slugger was hitting more home runs than anyone in history, and it dominated baseball as its most famous personality. But maybe the shy upstart Gehrig can make a leap and stand alongside the Babe. This opening day is especially exciting because the Yankees are going up against the team favored to win the pennant, the Philadelphia Athletics, featuring the legendary Ty Cobb in what would turn out to be his second-to-last season. The Yanks take the first game of the series. Gehrig mashes two runs batted in. Then the second game, three RBIs. They tie the third and win the fourth game. Over the next few weeks, Gehrig can't stop hitting. By the end of the first month, Gehrig, not Ruth, leads the club in hits. And he's hitting them hard, too. The media takes notice. By the end of May, the New York Times is calling Ruth and Gehrig the home run twins of the Yankees. It's not just whether the Yankees won or not, it's who hit home runs and how many they hit. Gehrig is suddenly playing above average defense and hitting the ball for more power than ever. Suddenly, a championship looks possible for the New York team, which takes on a whole new swagger. According to Jonathan Eig, no team has ever been so exalted. They become a phenomenon. I mean, baseball is the game in America at that time. 
So these guys are enormous stars and they're on the same team, so they become like a buddy act. Right before America's eyes, Ruth and Gehrig are changing the game of baseball. Two superstars on the same team. It's a little bit like, you know, Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, right? Suddenly you have the two best three-point shooters on one team. You got to start thinking differently. You got to start wondering if maybe this is not an anomaly at all. And they do. They transform the league. Everybody starts looking for sluggers. Every team is looking for the next Lou Gehrig because Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig are just tearing it up. Babe Ruth is already a legend. He soaks it all in as often as he can. Every now and then, he rents a hotel suite, puts on a red robe, and welcomes in whoever wants to enjoy a good time. Usually, women are involved. So he's an odd bedfellow for Gary, who isn't just new, but also doesn't want to live like Ruth. He was still this guy who just didn't fit in in the clubhouse. He was very shy, he was very insecure, and he really wasn't making much of an effort to go out and be one of the guys, one of the boys. You know, he'd play some cards on the train, but he wouldn't go to bars. He didn't go out looking for girls. And yet, Babe and Lou are connected. On occasion, Lou would bring Babe home to his parents for a home-cooked meal. And Babe tried to bring Lou into his world, too. Trying to introduce him to the wonders of the world, the wine, the women. Lou still isn't really having any of it, though. But for years, there have been questions. Is this a friendship or a feud between the two stars. I think it was a brotherhood. And I think like all brothers, there are times where you fight, there are times when you hate one another, uh, but the love is always there. And I think that these two men really loved each other. Meanwhile, on the diamond, the two dominate the league. Not to mention, the Yankees also have incredible pitching, great defense, and are just a well-balanced squad. Some call this the best team ever. In 1927, Gehrig posts his best batting average yet, an unthinkable 373. According to today's advanced stats, his offensive output was 120% over the league average. And soon, lifted by his greatness, the Yankees make it to the World Series, playing against the Pittsburgh Pirates. They win their first game, the second, third, they sweep the Pirates and win it all. To top it off, Gehrig takes home his first MVP of the American League. Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig are now on an established super team, winning it all again in 1928, and then again in 32. All three of those series, sweeps. He was driving in more runs, and the fact that he's driving in all those runs while hitting after Babe Ruth, who, you know, clears the bases with homers very often, is really remarkable. As the years go on, Gehrig continues to never miss a game. It's Lou Gehrig Day, and more than 65,000 turn out for his 1900. He's played through fevers, minor injuries, anything to keep the streak going. Gehrig is proud of his resilience especially in contrast to Babe, who misses a ton of games. Babe Ruth, the Sultan of Swat, is temporarily laid up, but he says he'll be there raring to slug at the cry of, play ball. Ruth, who would take time off for, you know, various sexually transmitted diseases, for belly aches, for hangovers, and, and Gehrig was in the lineup every day. 
While Babe Ruth is this wildly charismatic party animal, Gehrig's dependability strikes a chord with a nation mired in an economic catastrophe. After all, Gehrig's career plays out during the Great Depression, when nearly the entire world was struck with falling tax revenues, profits, and personal income. Not to mention skyrocketing unemployment. When people were losing their jobs, that made Gehrig even more of a hero in a, in a way because he was this really reliable, hardworking, lunch bucket kind of guy. And uh, that's why he eventually earned the nickname the Iron Horse, which is, you know, a synonym for train. There's always been dissonance between Gehrig and Ruth's personalities. The healthy, clean guy versus the raucous partier. The quiet versus the gregarious. And then finally, something comes between them that turns tension into, well, more than tension. Gehrig's wife. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Lou Gehrig has never been much of a ladies' man. He's a wallflower at parties and often comes off as naive to women. But at one gathering, Gehrig catches the eye of a young woman named Eleanor Twitchell. <laughs> the 28-year-old Chicagoan is a secretary, something she doesn't enjoy. The party life has been an outlet for her. The Yankees know her as a regular at team social functions. Gehrig steals himself and approaches her. They hit it off and begin exchanging letters. One living in Chicago, the other in New York. One rainy day in Chicago, during a series against the White Sox in May 1933, Gehrig shows up at Eleanor's office and asks her to marry him. <gasps> they tied a knot in September, just a few months later. Instead of a honeymoon, he takes her on a team trip a barnstorming tour to Japan. This is where the trouble begins between Babe and Gehrig. Gehrig can't find Eleanor one day, and he's frantic. He's worried that she's fallen overboard or something. Finally finds her in Babe Ruth's cabin, drunk on the bed. This is Eleanor's version of the story, so she says she was fully clothed and they were just getting drunk, and Lou found his wife in the room with Babe and became furious. And that really changed their relationship. Babe and Lou were never quite the same, and their friendship really was damaged by that. Throughout the 1930s, 
Garrett continues to post monumental numbers, more than 150 RBIs in six of his nine seasons, not to mention a ton of homers. But in 1938, something changes. Even in spring training, feeling like something's wrong with his body. And he's starting to get blisters on his hands in spring training, which he'd never experienced before. He's got cramps, he's tripping on the bases. And as the season goes along, he's adjusting his batting stance in new ways. He starts ordering lighter bats. No one knows what's going on. Reporters wonder if Garrick brought this on himself by insisting to play in every game to keep the streak going. The New York Herald Tribune writes a piece headlined, Garrick's sparse hitting makes him Yankees' chief problem. As the season goes along, he's getting weaker and weaker. Um, he's finding more and more symptoms. The Yankees once again make it to the World Series, and Garrick puts up great numbers. But the Iron Horse is scared, even depressed. The last game of the World Series, he actually got drunk in the locker room, which is something he almost never did. So people began to wonder if he was worried, if he sensed that something was going on. It's May 1939, Gehrig's 14th season of baseball. Even with his body beginning the weekend, he's continued his consecutive game streak, now reaching over 2,100 games. But his performance on the field begins to seriously decline, at least by his standards. Rather than continue on, for the first time in 14 years as a Yankee, Gehrig decides to rest. It's 1 o'clock as the Yankees suit up for their game against the Detroit Tigers. Well, he went to Joe McCarthy uh, at the hotel in Detroit. They were in town to play the Tigers, and he said, I'm hurting the team. you got to take me out. And Joe had always said that you know, he had too much respect for Lou. He was never going to bench him. The decision had to be Lou's. And um, that day, when the, the announcers announced the starting lineups and Garrett wasn't in it, the crowd kind of became hushed. In 1925, he started a string of consecutive games that almost surely will hold up for all time. For the next 14 years, he played in every ball game in which the Yankees participated. 2,130 successive appearances before the skein finally ran out in 1939. The Iron Horse's streak is over. It ends at 2,130 consecutive games. Everybody was stunned in Detroit, not not New York. So these are fans of the opposing team, and they were still shocked and awed, and they rose in a standing ovation to pay tribute to this courageous player, this guy who played in so many consecutive games that I think they recognized that this was a, an important moment and that it was a difficult moment for Gehrig, even without knowing that he was sick, that to end his streak this way was, was humbling. His plan is to take some time off and then come back, rested. He does return, but in his first game back, he trips on the base pass, falls down. In his last game, he gets knocked over, catching a line drive. After that incident, he finally was persuaded to go to the Mayo Clinic, and his wife talked him into it, and he left the Yankees, flew to Minnesota, and checked into the Mayo Clinic, 
Gehrig's legendary strength has disappeared. The doctor at the Mayo Clinic observes twitching and tremors in Gehrig's muscles. Unlike physicians before him, the doctor immediately suspects a rare but serious disease called amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. At this point, very little is known about ALS. Many doctors still haven't even heard of it, which is likely why it took so long to arrive at a proper diagnosis. Gehrig's doctor at the Mayo Clinic, a neurologist named Henry Waltman, has to have a difficult conversation. He told Gehrig that there was no cure, that most people die within a year or two, and um, you're never going to play ball again. Gehrig remained cool and collected even after learning of the diagnosis. When he told his wife Eleanor the news, it felt like he was just giving a weather update. When Gehrig's illness hits the media, the public doesn't quite understand the seriousness of it. They didn't appreciate that this was fatal, that this was going to destroy his muscles until he couldn't breathe, until he couldn't swallow. So um, there was a lot of misunderstanding. And people also thought that perhaps it was contagious. And in fact, the Daily News wrote a series of stories saying that Gehrig had given the this disease to all his teammates, and that's why the Yankees were on a little bit of a losing streak. In what must have felt like an instant, Lou Gehrig's career is over. In the prime of his life. He's just 36 years old when he plays his last game on April 30th, 1939. Naturally, the Yankees want to honor Gehrig. The ever-reliable Iron Horse had been the resilient touchstone of the franchise for 14 seasons a seven-time All-Star, two-time MVP, a triple crown winner. But how do you honor a player who just led your team to another World Series win, who was in this prime just a year before? The players want to keep the celebration private, but sports writers want a public ceremony and the team gives in. The Yankees schedule Lou Gehrig Appreciation Day for July 4th, 1939, between two games of a doubleheader with the Washington Senators. The Yankees expect an enormous crowd, and they're proved right. Back to Yankee Stadium for a heart-rending moment in 1939. It's Lou Gehrig Day. Gehrig, 36, stricken with a fatal form of infantile paralysis, is bowing out. Gehrig sits on the bench watching the first game of the doubleheader, dreading the upcoming ceremony. The game ends. The Yankees lose to the Washington Senators 3-2, and soon, everything is in motion. A brass band marches across the field. Current Yankees line up along the diamond. The mayor of New York, Fiorella LaGuardia, stands alongside the U.S. Postmaster General. Even Babe Ruth, who had retired from baseball four years earlier, is on the field. Garrick walks out with the help of his former manager and stands near home plate while listening to short speeches from the mayor and Babe Ruth. Gehrig is, is really shy still and doesn't want any of this. You know, he, he begs his manager not to make him go out on the field. They presented him with testimonies from, from the mayor, from opposing teams, from his teammates. They gave him gifts. There were speeches. It's really an extraordinary moment. The crowd roars for Gehrig to say something many of whom still do not appreciate the fatal implications of Gehrig's disease. He gets up to speak. Past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. 
Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. When you look around, wouldn't you consider it privilege to associate yourself with such a fine-looking man as a standing in uniform in this ballpark today? That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. Gehrig tears up. This upends the image that's become known to the public. Stoic, unemotional. Now he comes across as thoughtful and sensitive. He showed a kind of heroism, a kind of bravery that day in giving that speech that people had taken for granted they had overlooked. After the speech, Babe Ruth comes to Gehrig and puts his arm around him. To the public, it looks like Babe is trying to bury the hatchet. Babe Ruth never held a grudge. Babe Ruth loved everybody. And, and Lou is still, when Babe comes over and gives a little speech, Babe says, uh, now you'll have time to go fishing. And, you know, it's just kind of yucking it up. So I think that, uh, I like to think that they repaired their, their friendship. Once the event is over, it's clear Garrick's speech would become instant history. Reporters stopped taking notes, stunned by the emotional pronouncement. They never wrote down the full speech, and the sound recordings we have are still incomplete. Some of the guys wrote in the paper that day that this was a game changer, that this changed everything they thought they knew about Gehrig, that he's gone from being a baseball player to being a new kind of a hero, the kind of thing you rarely see in history. You know, did the Gettysburg Address have that kind of impact overnight? No, it took weeks for it to travel across the country. But overnight, Gehrig's image changed. Why was this speech so legendary? Why do we all seem to recognize that echoing, luckiest man on the face of the earth line? For Eig, it's about the raw authenticity of it. Gehrig was able to be vulnerable opening up about his gratitude for everyone in his life. He's offering us a guide. He's offering us a path to dealing with tragedy, saying we're all going to suffer in our lives. We're all going to lose people we love. We're all going to die. But we can focus on the beauty of life. We can focus on the good times that we've had and not let the tragedy define us. And that's a message that still gives goosebumps, still makes me tear up. But it's also about the tragedy itself. Here's the iron horse of baseball, the most resilient player that ever played the game, 2,130 consecutive games, who's played alongside Babe Ruth, the guy who famously treats his body like junk, Gehrig, who does everything right, and yet he still handed a death sentence before he could even reach the age of 40. The Iron Man of baseball is dead. Lou Gehrig, idol of a sports-loving nation, is lost to his wife and friends. He was just shy of his 38th birthday. Just two years after his famous speech, Gehrig passes away.
He's still remembered as one of the greatest first basemen of all time. But he also has a legacy outside of baseball. Gehrig was able to shed light on the little-known disease known as ALS and raise it into the public's consciousness. It helped give patients a symbol of strength that they could look up to. This is Lou Gehrig's disease, and you know everybody knows what that means. They know that it's fatal, but they also know that it's associated with a man of strength and courage. Certainly in terms of raising money for the research, for the treatment of patients, Gehrig has been a hero in that respect too. Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, sportspod at history.com. We love to hear from our fans and non-fans too. Special thanks to our guest, Jonathan Eig, author of the book, Luckiest Man, The Life and Death of Lou Gehrig. This episode was produced by Cooper McKim, story edited by me, Kalen Jones, and sound designed by Bill Moss. Sports History This Week is also produced by David Ingber. Our senior producer is Ben Dixing. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. And our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.